This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. Hello and welcome back. This is Daniel Clark here with the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we interview leading wildlife photographers, conservationists, and scientists to learn more about the awe-inspiring species that we share this fascinating planet with. Guests of the podcast have traveled to the edges of the world to observe, photograph, study, and support wildlife in their natural environment, and as you probably can imagine, now have some of the most exciting, scary, crazy, extreme, and beautiful stories that I have ever heard. Today's guest is Matt Draper, an internationally acclaimed fine art photographer. Matt uses his imagery to foster love for the ocean by replacing fear with fascination. We discuss a lot from free diving with humpback whales in Tonga, to traveling for two weeks on an ice-breaking boat, to find king penguins on Macari Island, to watching two elephant seals fight, cage diving with great white sharks, and swimming with spotted eagle rays, sea turtles, tiger sharks, and basically everything else that you can imagine. Matt is a phenomenal artist. You have to check out his work. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here it is, my chat with the one and only Matt Draper. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I've been following you on Instagram for a long time now. And I have to say the imagery is some of the most breathtaking I've seen. And my favorite animal in the entire world is the humpback whale. So it's very understandable as to why I'm stoked for this conversation. (laughs) <laughs> but I wanted to start off with kind of an uh, what might be an odd question, but a common theme I've seen through a lot of your captions on Instagram talks a lot about the energy of the world and the vibrations of the ocean. I just kind of wanted to get a sense as to what you mean by that and how you feel that the ocean relates to your life and you as an individual, if that makes sense. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me and thank you for the kind words. Um, to answer the question, I feel um, the ocean, like I've lived a life of extremes. I feel like up until this point and the ocean has been an incredible form of balance for me, almost a tool to be a tool within myself, if that kind of makes sense. Mm. Um, so, you know, being in the realm of these incredible, huge pelagic animals, cetaceans and apex predators, um, I feel it's more the energy I feel for them and and the consciousness, I guess, and somewhat they're observing me more than I'm observing them. So, yeah, I I don't know. I just feel this incredible source of energy around me and, and we're all part of nature. I think we're so desensitized to what we live in now and the concrete jungle we call home, whereas we are way more relatable to a humpback whale or a shark than we are, you know, cement and mortar. Yeah, I've noticed you mentioned that in one of the captions too, that you find a humpback whale to be a very relatable creature. Can you expand on that a little bit? Um, I just feel like they are, well, they are inc- so incredibly smart and they really seek your, inten- your attention and and the interaction is somewhat like, you know, conversing or, or looking into the eyes of a human. They really look right through you and they just have this incredible sense around them. But then they can go straight into that wild side as well, you know, depending on 
what they're doing, if they're feeding, if they feel like they're being threatened, if they're trying to look after the car. So it goes from this mm-hmm. incredible sense of consciousness and, and interaction and incredible learnt behaviour that's almost human-like. Right. And then w- within a, a split second, it can go back to flapping its tail and just getting out there pretty quick smart. And then you're like, well, all right, it, it, I had this moment there and then now it's gone back to this wild animal. So that's what keeps me um, the excitement going, I guess. And again, going back to that energy, it's kind of relatable um, when you're looking into the eye and you kind of feel that emotion and then and then kind of you get that wild side. It's, you know, it just kind of leaves the door open for wanting more, if yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah. I would imagine when you're diving with creatures that large that inherently there's a sense of fear there. Is it easy to put that aside to actually stay in the moment and, in, and be present and enjoy the whales? Or is that something that was kind of, I mean, obviously you've done so many dives, I'd assume it was somewhat of a learned behavior. Can you talk a little bit about whether that was the case or you're just a crazy person who doesn't get scared of anything? And, and if um, so, like h- how you've been able to deal with that? Yeah, I guess there's not too much in the ocean. It's hard to to delve into this because I have to be careful how I relate to fear because fear is an incredible emotion or feeling that we feel to to become safer. You know, I guess going into a situation, if you, you have that fear, you're going to act on it. Um, so it's hard for me to say that I don't have any fear, but I kind of don't when I'm in the ocean. I, I feel this incredible presence. I'm pretty sure of what I'm getting into in most situations. Um, not that I can control it, the environment or the animal, but um, I've never really felt that fear. If it comes to something like a tiger or a bear or a crocodile, it's like, man, I'm not going near any animal like that. You know, I have <laughs> yeah. the utmost respect for it and, and I have a lot of fear for those kind of predators. But when I get into the ocean, it's, I don't know, I feel like I'm really at home and um, I never want to go out and do something in a way that puts my life in jeopardy or puts a negative yeah, outlook on a, on the animal. If I'm acting like an idiot in front of a shark and I get bitten, the shark's going to be the one that comes off worse because of right. public perception. So um, it's hard to sit here and say I don't have any fear jumping in the water, but I kind of don't. It's, <laughs> uh, I, have, I have a huge respect and hopefully a lot of learnt knowledge and education through incredible scientists I've been hanging out with and, and just time in the water. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the water. So um, I guess, you know, when you see someone that that is well-trained around other wild animals that I'm fearful of, such as bears or tigers or lions, then right. you know, I'd probably be asking the same question. Can you talk a little bit about the first experience you've had swimming up on a whale like what even put you into that situation in the first place did you just wake up one day and you're like I'm going to take a boat out and try and find one or uh, no I mean I was invited to the kingdom of Tonga which is um, in the Pacific in between New Zealand and Fiji and it's one of the most or if not the most incredible place to dive with humpback whales legally um, they migrate there from Antarctica to, to give birth and to mate they're not eating at all, so um, they are a lot more relaxed than they would be down south. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was actually invited there probably after about six months after picking up the camera for the first time. I ended up making friends with a few conservationists, and they explained that they're going to do a trip over to Tonga to document the whales and create a bit more awareness around it. And they knew that I had um, 
you know, a camera in an underwater housing and I was here in Byron Bay, I was photographing a lot of turtles and things like that. So they invited me over and we made the trip over together and yeah, when we got there, I mean, it didn't really feel real until we got in the ocean with the first, I think it was a, a mother and calf with an escort. So a male was a lot lower on the, um, on the sea floor and yeah, it was just absolutely amazing. It was, it's just like when you you look at something, you're just like, how is this real? This is so big and just, oh, yeah, just absolutely mind-blowing and, and just forever hooked after that moment. You know, um, I feel like going back to living that life on the extreme, I've gone through a lot of phases and different areas of my life, but this is one that I'm really enjoying at the moment and I feel like it's really changed me as a, as a complete person. Can you can you elaborate a bit on that? What what were you doing before um, the underwater photography really took off, and how do you feel that it's it's changed you? Um, so I worked in construction my entire life. Like I left home pretty young, um, around fifteen, sixteen. I left school and I did my building apprenticeship. Um, after a couple of years of just working in retail and hospitality, and through that building apprenticeship, I also was a firefighter in um, in New Zealand. So yeah, I was always outdoors and creating, I guess. And when I moved over to here in Australia, um, I ended up working in the in the mining industry, doing a lot of construction and in other kind of areas of the mines, um, operating heavy machinery. And yeah, and then through that, I just I always had more of a creative aspect or element that was kind of hiding amongst everything. And mm-hmm. my mind was just forever turning and and putting a, a really awkward and different spin on things, you know, just I'd observe things a lot differently, I felt, than my peers. And um, I finally acted on that, and I guess I just literally quit the job and and bought a camera and, yeah, literally turned my life completely. And did you know you were going to have a knack for photography or it just an instinctual thing? Um, no, I always had a camera with me from a young age, and I traveled a lot the last 10 years like I've traveled quite extensively (laughs) sorry I can't even say that right now um (laughs) but yeah and and then I was always kind of just like thinking of ways to get out of the situation I was in I was in like a a gray area in my mind I guess and um to me that was like how can I do something fun with ultimate freedom and also making money out of it you know so um, I'd saved quite a lot of money in the mines enough to purchase a really decent camera and underwater housing. In my mind, I'd surfed for a long time, so that's what I was going to do. I was like, all right, I'm going to take photos of surfers in the water. Um, How can I make money out of it? So I thought, well, no one in Byron Bay is really taking photos of surfers out in the ocean and selling or providing those people with the images because what does every surfer want? They normally want a photo of themselves getting a really good wave. Um, so I got all these, you know, I thought about this for a long time. I Googled the absolute best camera I could get, the best water housing. I emailed local surf photographers. I asked them what lenses they're using. I had no knowledge of shooting manual settings or, mm-hmm. or ever shooting surf. So, um, you know, through that, the few weeks that I was really trying to educate myself on it all, <clears throat> um, I finally quit the mines and, I actually made about 1,000 of these little 
bracelets, plastic bracelets that I now call the ultimate turtle strangler, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I had my email address on the inside, which is drapershotme at gmail.com. <laughs> That's what I call myself, drapershotme. And on the outside, I had like a photo of, oh, sorry, just a an emoji as such of a skull and crossbones. So it was quite a cool little bracelet to wear, I, th- I thought at the time. And um, I'd just paddle up to people in the surf after taking an image of them and I'd be like, hey, I, I got a really cool photo of you. Here's my contact details. You can just put it on your wrist and when you get home, send me an email. And, um, you know, 80 to 90% of those people would be emailing me that night to no see shit. the image. And then I'd, yeah. I'd send them back uh, the, the file of the image but with a big sample or copyright over their mm-hmm. face. Then I'd explain to them, hey, this is my job. You know, I charge $25 for a photo or 50 for a sequence and it's up to you if you want it. So um, that's how I first got in the ocean with the camera and that's how I I first kind of found a way to get out of the mines and also have a little bit of income. And I was making like $250 a day some days. Like I was yeah. in the water for, for 10 hours and just enjoying it and, and that kind of went by for about a month. Maybe a bit longer, actually. Probably close to three months. I, may, I probably did that for thinking about it now. It feels like a lifetime ago, but it was only, you know, four years. <laughs> yeah. You know, the funny thing is I, I've i always kind of had an obsession about wildlife. And when I was working my full-time job, which was in sales and it was pretty boring, my first kind of side hustle to try and get into doing wildlife media full time was similar. I created turtle stranglers, <laughs> which were like those because they're just so cheap to make. And I yeah, made them cur- and they all had wildlife designs. So they'd look like a tiger or an elephant or a giraffe or something. And I'd give a dollar from everyone sold towards the conservation of that animal. But then sure yeah. enough, like as I'm advertising for it and trying to get into it, everybody that would be buying it, wildlife people are like, these are terrible for the environment. <laughs> what are you doing? And yeah. sure enough, I didn't sell too many of them. Of course. <laughs> and so what brought you from there to uh, wildlife? Was it something that was always kind of a, a passion of yours or because you were underwater <clears throat> photographing surfers, people kind of got wind and asked you to help out on a project? No, like um, I'd always as a kid being the the person that would pick up the largest spider in the house or when I moved to Australia, you know, um, the first thing I wanted to do is pick up a snake and these sound like stupid things to do, but it was just the wild that was in me. I grew up in in the bush in New Zealand, you know, our neighbours were a distance away and we kind of had no rules growing up. We had incredible parents that were quite firm in, in one way, but when it came to to being outside, my brother and I were outside every single night, especially in summer, you know, with daylight saving, we'd be out till nine o'clock at night building tree forts, like mm-hmm. cutting down trees, just creating total anarchy with each other. <laughs> we were very highly stimulated, you know, and I felt that's carried on to my adult life. Um, so going back to the question, <clears throat> focusing on that surf photography, I ended up discovering or being told about this reef that was literally you know, probably a hundred feet away from where I've been standing, taking these photos of surface for the last few months, where all these incredible green sea turtles were hanging out and feeding. So I was shown that spot and I ended up just hanging out there for weeks and weeks. And, you know, there was no more surf photography. I was just hanging out with these turtles. And 
was touching them, I was riding them, I was doing all these things that you shouldn't be doing because I wasn't educated on them. It's the first pretty much time I've ever swum with turtles in my life. So yeah. what what do you normally do when you see something you love or you, you like hanging out with, you want to touch it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I created an Instagram account. I started putting some of these photos online on Facebook and one day someone messaged me and said, hey, can you print this? Like, I'd love to buy it. And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, so I got on my push bike. I rode down to the industrial area and I found a few of the printers and I went around and got my little barter on and tried to, you know, get them down to a reasonable price. And I think I printed 10 of them and I sold them all in like a week on my Facebook just to friends in New Zealand. I think I charged $100 or $150 and I made 1500 bucks, you know? Yeah. Sweet. This is pretty cool. You know, not many (laughs) photographers actually see their own work and print. Yeah. So um, you're always looking at it on this tiny screen or, or your laptop. So it was quite, it was rewarding to see what the, first of all, what the camera was capable of and how incredible the images looked in print. Um, so I started kind of focusing on this. I was like, I want to sell prints, but I want to, no, I, I wasn't quite sure how to do it, but I knew where I was kind of headed. And then through that, I ended up meeting a really nice dude that worked for the Byron Bay Dive Center. He was one of the skippers and he invited me out to Julian Rocks, which is about 2.1 kilometers off the mainland. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the most eastern point of Australia, the mainland. Um, we get incredible winter and summer conditions here, the crossover of winter animals like great white sharks and uh, grey nurse sharks and then you get the summer animals, you have the leopard sharks or what you guys call the zebra sharks, you have mm-hmm. manta rays, about four different types of turtles. Yeah, and he invited me out and I kind of looked out to this rock in the middle of the ocean. I was like, I'm not going out there, man. There's sharks and <laughs> deep water and, right. and he's like, it's fine, just come along. And he really looked after me and any time the Byron Bay Dive Center would have a free spot on the boat, he'd ring me up, you know, half an hour before they got to the, to the boat ramp and I'll be straight down there. And um, that really, you know, it got my water time up. It introduced me to the art of freediving and really kind of progressed my imagery quite quickly. And then through that is when I met a few conservationists. They got in contact via Instagram. Um, I didn't even know what the word conservation was. I remember being on the beach with a couple of dudes and I said to them, I literally remember saying, what is the, what's the conservationist? <laughs> and he, he just laughed at me and I was, he's like, it's you and I, it's, it's anyone that is trying to do positive things for wildlife or, or our natural habitat or the earth itself. And I was like, cool, I'm a conservationist. <laughs> <laughs> and were those yeah. people engaging you largely to kind of get people engaged about the beauty of the, the underwater photography or were they wanting some research purposes behind the photographs you were taking? No, they were just a bunch of of young ocean enthusiastic people and, and some were really educated in their field. And um, and Byron's a, a bit of a meeting place, a, a creative hub as such. So these people, you know, were always meeting other people in that realm, I guess. So they saw me on Instagram, saw a few of the turtle photos, saw I had an underwater housing, a camera, which could also potentially help them um, and God. just wanted to meet up. So it was more of a, you know, just, hey, welcome to the world, I guess. And <laughs> how, how are you getting these photos and where are you taking them of? And, you know, I had the turtle spot and 
and um and then they had the knowledge and then I took them out with the turtles and then they're kind of like hey what are you doing touching them I'm like well don't you touch them <laughs> they're like, hey, you can't do that you know you're um, you can potentially drown them and start explaining the importance of the turtle, its breathing cycle, and how you know you can really impact them. And, and through that, through being surrounded by those people, I guess it started um, wearing off on me or, or learning from them in quite a, a quick manner. Right. It sounds so naive for me to kind of back then or for me to touch on that now, but um, that's the reality of it, you know. And a lot of people that aren't educated on on animals or wildlife, they they don't know any better. So I don't think there's such thing as common sense. That sense has to be learnt through learnt behaviour, through experience or through education. And and I was about to open the door of the experience side of things, and then um and then have that education pushed on me in an organic way by these incredible people. Right. You mentioned that there was never really an inherent fear with the whales, but when you're going off to those rocks that had whatever, three or four types of sharks there. Did that scare you at all? Yeah, it was just the unknown, I guess, and and that lack of experience. And, you know, um, yeah, I guess when I was invited out there, I was a little bit worried or I wouldn't say fearful, more just, all right, what, what's what's the go? <laughs> yeah, you feel the adrenaline pumping. For but sure. It's not necessarily a fear response. Mm. When you're with the, I've seen some crazy photos you've taken of great whites. Are those all cage diving or are you ever just out there with them? No, they're all cage. Um, we've had a couple of encounters here in Byron Bay, but they are a protected species. And with most sharks, um, to get the imagery we are getting, you have to entice them with somewhat of a food source a mm-hmm. lot of the time um, to engage with them, to have them stimulated for a long time. So the best place I've found to, to, um, document the great white has been down in South Australia with one of the operators there, these three operators and um, one has a bottom cage. I think it's the only one in the world. Um, the other one has more of a top cage and a single cage. And then I'm not too sure how the third one operates, but um, the name is Calypso and they've looked after me from the very beginning. And I was quite opinionated about the shark diving industry probably because of the opinions of those peers that I was hanging out with mm-hmm. and it was almost in a negative direction and um, I kind of voiced this slightly through social media and they kind of turned around and just invited me on board which is um, a really impressive and mature way of um, you know engaging with, with anyone that has a biased view Yeah, and uh, they they let me come down I think I spent nearly 10 days the first time I was, I was with them. And obviously there's a bit of a trade-off um, swapping the imagery through um, the time that they offer me on the water, but they put me in a single-man cage, which they don't offer for, for nearly anyone. And they hire you out about 30 metres or close to 100 feet off the other side of the boat, and you're in this tiny little cage on your own, and the sharks are just so inquisitive. And, yeah, and, and I've been down there every year since, and they've become – incredible friends and it's been amazing you know like to to see the great whites in their natural habitat and and collect that imagery and to to voice uh, my own opinion now through that through how has that changed what was your original negative feeling towards them uh more of just 
other animals becoming more habitualized? Are they changing their behavior because you're feeding them? Um, just general questions like mm-hmm. that. Are, are they hitting the cage? You know, are the sharks coming closer to shore? Like just all these questions I had or thoughts I had without knowing anything about it. Right. Um, but, you know, after learning so much now, Australia has some of the best rules and I probably couldn't go on record and state them correctly in case I got a couple of them wrong, but I'll try. And um, some of them are, they have non-activity days. So the great white sharks are traveling huge distances. They stop at the Neptune Islands to feed off thousands and thousands and thousands of fur seals. Mm -hmm. Um, So scientists have worked out how long the average um, stopover is, I guess, for these sharks to stop in Neptune Island. So um, for instance, if, if the average is two weeks, they want to maintain that. They don't want the shark staying for three weeks or staying for a month if they're being fed. Yeah, so they have non-activity days. I think they, they possibly have four days now in, in that two-week bracket. So if a shark is getting used to the scent that is um, present from the shark cage diving boats, They'll have a break for four days, and hopefully the shark's going to go, all right, I can't smell that tuna anymore. I, I can't see the bait. I'm not lunging for the bait. I've mm-hmm. eaten my seals. It's time to go to the next stop. So that's one of the rules they have in place. Another one is you're not allowed to feed the shark at all. So obviously they throw out baited lines. Um, if the shark ends up, you know, it's up to the operator or the bait handlers to hopefully pull that line in before the shark consumes it. If they do consume it, they have a timeout, which is around 15 minutes, I think. So there is a lot of really strict rules in place to to ensure the shark's behavior isn't changing. And I'm sure in some instances, because every indi- individual animal has its own behavior, like you might see some variations sure. in that behavior. But I feel um, the most positive thing is they're doing everything they can to control it the best they can. And through that, you know, close to with the the three boats combined you could have a hundred people out there each day or maybe not that much i think the boat i go on can hold 40 the other boat has about 15 and then i'm not sure on the third one so say collectively anywhere from 50 to say 75 people a day are seeing its animal that um has this incredible stigma around it so i i'm really for it i mean um, there are things that always can be done better, but at this stage, I, I enjoy going down there and love being part of it. Yeah, no, it's a crazy great white shark behavior that I heard, but I'm not sure it's true, is that the great whites that are in South Africa are actually the same great whites that are by South Australia, and they hunt similarly seals on both ends. But the only time you ever see them actually come up from under and jump out of the water to grab the seals is in South Africa, and they don't do that at all in South Australia, and nobody really understands why. Yeah, we've seen uh, recently um, there's a shark called Boomer, or actually he was named IMAX as well, so he has two names. IMAX um, sponsored him and kind of um, said that we'll sponsor that shark if you never tag it, and this shark has a really weird tail fin. It, it's really deformed and a lot of people say that it was from birth. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a, it's a decent-sized shark. You know, it's probably close to five meters long. And he will launch completely out of the water. Like really? he, I've seen completely breach. So 
I mean, again, like that same animal could be hanging out in South Africa and, and presenting that exact same behavior or, or more. But um, yeah, I couldn't tell you why or, or why not. They are not acting the same. That's crazy. The strength that's needed for that. I remember being a kid trying to like be in a pool and even in like three feet of water, like <laughs> jump up with my legs and get out of water. It wasn't even remotely close. <laughs> <laughs> so I noticed you spending a lot of time, obviously in very remote places like Tonga and what's the other one? Macquarie Island? Uh, Macquarie Island. Macquarie yeah. Island. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about getting to Macquarie Island? Like, are you taking like a little puddle jumper plane or is that a long boat ride? How do you get there? It was, um, yeah, that was an incredible adventure. It was probably, or it wasn't something I could ever fund myself. So I have to um, do a bit of a shout out to the incredible people that sponsored me to go down there. But um, a tech company by the name of Lenovo mm-hmm. contacted me um, last year and um, they said that we're doing a new campaign, different is better, and um, we want to sponsor you, you know, and what would be something that you'd really love to do. And I kind of thought about it for a while, and I thought I'd love to go and photograph something that was, you know, really, really remote, you know, try get a fine art image of something that really hasn't been captured in its light before. And um, And I came up with the thought of photographing the incredible King Penguin, and it would be down in Macquarie Island, which is a sub-Antarctic island, amongst others that are owned by New Zealand, but this one is run by Australia. So in the process of getting down there was around a two-week round trip on a Russian, old Russian ice-breaking boat, and um, we had some really, really rough weather. I think it took us around seven days to get to Macquarie. Damn. Uh, uh, yeah, we were chasing good weather or running away from bad weather. We had, you know, nine-metre swells. 60 knot winds, it was Intense. really challenging. <laughs> and, you know, when we got there, we we had about 40 minutes in the water to, to swim with the animal I've never interacted with before, to to scout out a location that I'd never been before, you know, and then we had the pressure of the scientists that are watching us to ensure we did nothing wrong by these animals because it is, you know, an incredible part of the world. It is monitored by these amazing educated scientists and so you, it is, you took seven days to get there and only had 40 minutes to actually shoot when you got there yeah correct yeah <laughs> and i think i you That's know normally crazy. i come away from from something like that with thousands of photos and and normally pick out the one that i envision or you know i, I guess when it comes to the the prints the imagery i i get i've always i've thought about it before i've captured it you know it's i've dreamt it it's been a scenario in my, my mind that I, I've lived for days and days before actually getting in front of that animal. So, um, and through that, I normally have other images to choose from, but I literally got, I think, maybe nine or 10 photos in that 40 minutes. And one of them was the one that I, I was so fortunate to get. But I actually was really stressed out that trip. Like, I felt the pressure of not only creating imagery for myself and and to do this animal justice and to create a one-of-a-kind print but also to ensure the company that sent me down there were getting their end of it you know right um definitely so it was it was really hard to manage in my mind and to navigate and it was actually quite a yeah it was a hard trip I felt so I'd assume it's an uninhabited island uh they have a science station on there where people are there for months at a time. 
But um, yeah, it, it's absolutely amazing. You know, I think it's 35 kilometers long by about five kilometers wide, and you have hundreds of thousands of animals there, if not, yeah, in the millions, 100% in the millions collectively. Damn. Like what? Like what? Penguins and what else? Uh, you have, yeah, king penguin. You have the endemic royal penguin. You have Gen Two rock hoppers, and then you have the second or the the largest marine mammal in the world. That's not a cetacean, which is the southern elephant seal, and they grow up to you know six meters long. Dude, there. I saw a photo of you walking by an elephant seal, two of them fighting, and it yeah. looked like it was a skyscraper. The thing's massive, oh, and I was like, huge. "How is this guy not?" running away as fast as you possibly can i was in the foreground of that photo and the the elephant seals are in the background and they were still towering over me in the image so it it just showed the perspective but they were as wide as a car and i actually you know i i, I was keeping my distance yeah <laughs> i guess yeah. they can't really run that fast on land right they're kind of fat oh uh, they things. Can, they can do pretty well yeah i wouldn't I wouldn't second guess that much. <laughs> so do you notice when you're over there, when you're in areas of the world that are less inhabited, do you feel that there's a different animal behavior collectively in terms of how you're able uh, to interact or engage with the wildlife? What do you mean by meaning that? Like, Just like- meaning like I, I had a couple of friends who had visited the Galapagos. Like, mm-hmm. It was a while ago, probably like close to a decade ago. And he said, when you would go just between the birds and even the seals, when you get underwater, they have such less instinctual fear around human beings. Um, But again, like who knows if that's them spending a shit ton of money to get to the Galapagos and wanting to feel that, or if that's like (laughs) a true story or not. I just wondered like how much of, I always always dream of being like snow white, right? When you kind of walk out into the forest and animals are playing with you and stuff. And I was, I always oh, I mean, dream that there's places of the world that you can still do that. The, yeah, Macquarie Island is definitely like that. Um, the 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 amount of penguins is just astonishing. The abundance, and they will seek out. You know, they'll they'll come right up to you. I was lying on the ground, they're picking my hair, trying to get my booties off. Like they really are inquisitive and um and don't like don't seem like they they hold much fear at all, which is quite. Um, astonishing because it wasn't that long ago um, technically or, or speaking in, in the realms of time on this earth that um, humans were down there um, killing everything you know they were sending the king penguins into these boilers where they're getting the fat and blubber and the god they you know they removed I think close to all of the the um, elephant seals and it was, there was some really negative times down there. Um, I guess it was just back in the, the days of survival and, and um, you know, humans put their life and still do in front of animals and and the material they were acquiring from those animals were things that they could use to light light bulbs or keep warm or, or whatever it was at the time. It was relevant, but um, they nearly wiped out everything there. So when you think about that only happening in our not your and I lifetime, but in the lifetime of humans, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it's, it wasn't that long ago. So the animals have come an incredibly long way since then. And to, to have that new behavior as such, where they're more inquisitive now than, than, um, than running away, I guess. 
Yeah, and that's something that I always take is, especially when you follow as many wildlife accounts on Instagram as I do, it's very easy to get down on the doom and gloom about how many species we've lost over the last two decades, et cetera. But there's one thing, and for people who have listened to multiple episodes of this podcast, they'll probably get very sick of me talking about this story. But I had a friend who used to clear brush um, to make lots for houses. And it was amazing how no matter how many acres of land he would clear, how quickly the, the nature would grow back and come back into the area. And I think it's very similar when you see marine protected areas and how amazingly fast species can start to rebound. Uh, it does provide some level of optimism that despite how bad it is, if you do kind of just change uh, or correct your course a little bit, that it's not a lost cause by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I agree with that. My favorite photo of yours is one called Lights Over Dark, which is, it's literally like pitch black, but you can barely see the outline of manta rays from kind of a bird's eye view, but I think they're manta rays. And uh, they're speckled, so it almost looks like a, it looks like a starry sky. It's a beautiful shot. But you, oh, said, said, you. you said in the caption that it took you over a year and a half to get. Can you talk a little bit about what that process was like? And uh, Yeah. Um, so the, the spotted eagle rays, which, uh, you know, they will get to the site. Oh, they can get quite big. Um, not as big as a manta ray, but... And um, it was just a, a vision I had for a long time, and and the spotted eagle ray are absolutely amazing. From looking or observing over the top or from behind, that it's incredible. Um, just the most. It's hard to even put into words, but they're just so elegant underwater. But then from front on, they have this weird kind of puppy dog face, and if anyone's ever swum with them before that agree with it so i'm sure because uh, i mean you could google the front of a um a spotted eagle ray and the the face is just almost somewhat comical (laughs) but they can they can be quite um quite timid i guess and Mm -hmm. and it is hard to get a really good interaction with them and we have quite a few of them out at julian rocks and it's just hard to get the right light or to to really produce what i had envisioned for a long time and obviously it was just to show those spots and more of an intergalactic kind of cosmic way and um, and really draw people into to how beautiful they are and elegant. And, and yeah, I just spent a long time working on it, a really long time and just a lot of trial and error. And I remember the day I was diving out there and it was probably around this time of the year actually and we're out looking for the grey nurse sharks and we're, we're diving this, you know, pretty deep bit of ocean and it was really cold and murky and um, in between some of those drops to go down and see the sharks, um, these three eagle rays, or there's actually four of them at one stage, just started circling below me. And I think I got about 10 or 15 minutes um, of, of shooting, and I just knew it straight away that I had the image. And I kind mm-hmm. of came home and sat on it for a few weeks before I I edited it and then I think I edited it and then I sat on it again for a few months and I finally posted it and the response is just amazing. Um, and it's hard to show the detail there on such a small screen when people are looking at it through Instagram, but in print, like at my shows, it's, it's normally the most favorite image, you know, if not second or third best, um, depending how many photos I have on display, it gets, yeah, it gets a lot of Why did you sit on it for so long? Did you just, did you know it was um, as special as it was? 
Yeah, I just do with everything. Like um, these photos now that I've I've had for six months that I probably won't show for another year, they're just really special to me. And, you know, I probably have, oh, who knows, maybe 100,000 photos legitimately on hard drives from all my interactions. And there's probably thousands of printable images on there. But I feel like I really go into something with the vision of, of um, how I want to present this in print form before I even in the water with these animals. So um, it's a true expression of me. So when I do get an image mm-hmm. that ticks all the boxes, it's quite special and it's, um, you know, it's hard because you want to put it out there and you want to, I guess, get that validation in somewhat, but you also, uh, when your your artwork is so close to you, it's an expression of you. So, um, you know, I'm just more patient when I put it out there and, and you know, I go through stages of, testing it with the printer and making sure the colors are calibrated right and you know get the print to my house and over oversee it and it, it's a pretty decent process i go through before sure. it goes out through the the um crazy internet <laughs> that's always been part of the career of a photographer that always to me would seem from the outside looking in the most stressful part of your job which is how do you take that many photographs, let's say the 100,000 photos you have on your hard drives and pick 100 and go through and know which photo is the ones that you're going to actually want to move forward with? Um, Like I say, it's just I already have it in my mind. So, you know, uh, for example, that that Eagle Ray shot, you know, I probably would have captured 500 photos that day collectively Mm -hmm. of the dive and then I would have just gone home straight away, gone straight to that image downloaded that, sat on it, played with it, edited it, printed it, test printed it, got it home months and months later and and then put it out there. And then, you know, someone would have been like, hey, do you remember that dive we had when you got the Eagle Ray image? Have you got anything from the Grey Nurse Sharks? And I'm like, oh, yeah, go back to the, the hard drive. And oh, there's still another 499 photos <laughs> I haven't, which are incredible, but they weren't my vision, you know. It was more... Got it. But I, I want to be known as an artist and not just a photographer. I'm not saying that it's just a photographer, but, sure. um, but you know, I mean, like I don't want to be in the moment and and capture something the animal's already doing and then take it home and kind of claim it as mine when it was all the beauty of the animal. I like to envision something, really try to produce it in my mind, in my heart, and then go out and try manifest that moment to happen. And then I get home, I'm like, sweet, like this is the image that I talked to you guys about, you know, I envisioned it for ages and, and this and that, and then you become more part of that work. That's really cool because I think oftentimes what's lost from people who aren't familiar with the industry is that they kind of expect you to go out and cross your fingers that some crazy, amazing thing happens and you're able to capture it. Whereas you actually <clears throat> genuinely go out with a sheer intention of a specific image that you want to create before going out sure something i found interesting about rays is uh i was talking to sean heinrichs who's an incredible underwater cinematographer and uh he was mentioning that they have this new research out that i'm not sure if it's all rays but manta rays are one of the first i don't know if they're categorized as a fish but whatever it is within their um type Mm -hmm. of animal that can they're self-aware like they recognize themselves in a mirror um, or at least the, the evidence is starting to prove that way, which is crazy because you would look at something as weird looking as a ray and never expect it to be like a self-aware sentient being like that. Sure, the, the yeah, manta rays, I mean, all animals, they 
they have an incredible array of intelligence that that we're st- just starting to learn now. But manta rays are so so intelligent. Like I've had quite a few interactions with them locally and abroad, and they definitely know what's going on. They just like you feel like there's a little alien in there controlling that entire body. The way they look at you, the just the elegance they have, the the speed they can generate. They're just absolutely astonishing underwater. They're incredible, remarkable. And so what's your process typically like? Like now that you've obviously are an incredibly established underwater wildlife photographer, is it mostly you say, I want this image, I want to go on this trip, and you kind of bankroll it yourself with the understanding that you're going to collect images that you can ultimately print and sell, and it's like a very entrepreneurial type of gig? Or is it something where... Lenovo or a lot of different types of sponsors reach out to you with a specific vision in mind that they want to help you create? Uh, Lenovo was the first kind of real funding I've had. Um, And the sense of that was organic and it was a really good plan they came up with and I was really on board. But um, the whole reason I did this was for ultimate freedom. And to me, ultimate freedom is not doing things for other people. And Mm -hmm. and I, I I've only kind of just learned that it's okay to say that I'm doing this for myself. And I had this incredible change in myself where I went from the construction industry or the mining industry or whatever um, you want to put on that into a world of, I guess, subliminally promoting animals in a, a positive way. So I feel like through that time and just unknowingly, I've been pigeonholed as like a conservationist, as a wildlife photographer, as this and this, where I, I just want to be known as a fine art photographer. I want mm-hmm. my subject to be whatever feels right. You know, I'm working on a new series now that's has nothing to do with animals. And I'm so fortunate and humbled to, to put sharks and, and other animals that are under risk in a positive way. But that wasn't my direction at the start. It was to create incredible imagery and, and prints and a, a really high quality product. So I'm um, just navigating that um, with intent. And I guess going back to your question, it, it's, yeah, it's all done off my own back. Like I, I have a vision of an animal that I want to document or I guess create artwork from and I'll save up the money to do it. I'll connect with the right people. I'll do it 100% on my own resources and funding and then hopefully come back with the image that becomes a print and then make that money back through the print so um from the outside looking in a lot of people think you're killing it or you're you're lucky or all these words that get thrown around but the funny thing about luck is the harder you work the luckier you get right and right. Uh, and I'm not scared to say that what my intentions are now and you know at the the beginning a lot of people helped direct me and I guess the wrong way because it was like oh, sweet, you're going to Tonga again, all these photos of the humpback. Like, what are you doing for for the humpback or what charity are you kind of like donating to? And these are all questions that were put on me when I was in an incredible amount of debt, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you go out and buy a $10,000 camera, you buy a $10,000 housing, you do a $10,000 trip, that's 30 grand there. You come back and sell your print. And then people are like, yeah, now where's that 30% of um, donations going? You're like, well, I'm... I want to thrive. I don't want to just survive. And yeah, you know, it's just this weird pressure that is put on you through other people where, oh, Matt, you're working in the mines. Like, sweet. Like, enjoy the money. You're cashed up. Shout us a beer sometime. Oh, you're 
you're now in this kind of different realm where you're technically exploiting something in other people's eyes. So, so what are you putting back in? Which is something I'm, I've been able to do in the in the last show, and now that I'm in a better place. But having those questions and that pressure at the start was quite hard to to deal with because it was such a a new realm for me. You know, being around um, awake people and and people that were promoting conservation and people that were really on the the front line of activism and and you know they were they are the real fighters. Um, and it, it was just hard for me to kind of feel like I sat amongst them and then sat amongst normal people that that were my friends or are my friends that still work in industries that have nothing to do with wildlife. Um, It is an odd balance to strike because inherently by having that stigma that if you work in in a space like the nonprofit industry or work in conservation, et cetera, that you have to donate a certain portion of what you're doing and it's almost expected of you is to your point, it almost stops people who could really benefit those industries from getting involved in the first place. Like I think in the, I spent some time in the nonprofit industry and a big problem was the one metric that everybody focused on was pass-through rate. Like if I donate $100, how much of that goes to the actual cause versus how much of that goes to the actual like organization and the salaries, et cetera. And the problem is, is that if you expect everybody in the nonprofit industry to only make uh, like a below middle class wage or something like that, you don't get the best talent in there who ultimately will drive forward success. So you might get yeah. somebody that you're paying pennies who is able to raise a million dollar for your organization. But if you were able to get somebody who you paid a couple hundred thousand bucks a year, all of a sudden they're raising a hundred million dollars for that organization and have a way better impact and are probably spending the money even better. So it, it almost... Mm-hmm detracts from the ultimate end goal by attaching these certain stigmas and these certain expectations from people. Yeah, I feel it's a, it's a hard thing to converse and a lot of people listening will be like, always make up their own minds of the person through through their own beliefs or a reflection of their own negative aspects or whatever it is. Um, but my own intention is just to empower people and to have that outlook where you can thrive, not just survive um, and still live consciously and, and and through a positive way and I mean if everyone was doing their bit to 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 create an abundance of incredible solutions um, and they were profiting off it then I have no problem with that you know if yeah if, if someone can go into a restaurant and offer alternatives to single-use plastic and and straws and and create a company out of that that is doing positive things and make money off it, then I'm all about it. Why shouldn't we? We've traditionally really like split things off as to either you're a corporate individual and you're just a money hungry pig or you're in the nonprofit sector and you just need to collect money as charity every year. And there's really, I mean, using business to help solve social issues is one of the strongest tools that we have. And by thinking of it in such a black and white lens, you're really not enabling people to to use business to really help the world in, in a positive way. Like there's nobody that could say, and I'm not saying you specifically, but if anybody had this crazy following and was able to do amazing work photographing animals and made a lot of money doing that, it, the work that you're putting out into the world in and of itself with no donations is more than enough to satisfy the the sense of wonder that you're instilling in kids and the sense of people caring about the animals in the first place 
that the net benefit is huge. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's so many different ways to look at it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, in, the intent for me is there and I want to keep, uh, I guess, you know, replacing fear with fascination through the imagery and promoting the animals and, and getting people in the water and then empowering them. Um, but I also want to have a premium product. I want my prints to be making good money. I want them to be uh, of a high standard and to be very limited. And I want people to to really enjoy having them on their wall and and feel a sense of pride of, of ownership of having that. So these are all things that I'm just constantly juggling and to come out of one industry and, and then be plomped into here and, and to start doing quite well through it. Um, you know, that thought process needs to catch up with with what I'm creating. So again, that that's probably sounds like um, a puzzle of words I'm talking of, but yeah, I'm, I'm constantly trying to battle with the intent of everything. Well, I think that also permeates into kind of the relationship between conservation folks um, and some industry folks. I know I noticed how on your Instagram, a lot of your imagery is obviously just of the magnificence of these creatures, but you've also have the picture of the plastic bag floating in the ocean. There's the picture of you holding the head of a Mako shark that had just been killed. And there's the the humpback whale that had lacerations on it from being strangled by fishing line, et cetera. Um, one, can you talk a little bit about where you feel your relationship to conservation is, but also what I really appreciated from your caption in those photos was you explicitly said like, let's have a dialogue about this and talk about it. This isn't a forum to just obliterate people who don't agree with your specific stance. And I think that's really important, not only in conservation, but in the entire world. And it goes to the same uh, kind of point we were making in the last concert uh, conversation, which is things aren't black and white and you need to have a discussion around things or else you get no progress because continuing to polarize people and uh, it, it just doesn't benefit anybody. But I know that's basically me talking and I kind of ruined the question. But can you talk a little bit about like where you see your relationship to conservation? And um, Yeah, I guess uh, hopefully it's a positive one. I think it is, obviously. But um, I just like to communicate with people how I've been communicated to when things have changed me. And, and that's change only comes when you feel it or when you feel like, it's going to change you. And for example, there's so many different ways to converse something. I remember when I was, you know, about 16 years old and I was doing my building apprenticeship and I was working with my boss and I could see that he was had his head under this window and there was this nail sticking out and he kept putting his head up and he was so close to hitting this nail and, you know, and he was stubborn, but he was an incredible guy and amazing boss. And I remember thinking in my mind, if I tell Craig to to look out for the nail, he's just going to say, you know, shut up, grommet, <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> right, whatever. Right. It's like, I've been doing this for years and years. But I said to him, um, you know, his wife, I said, what would Francie do if you came home in an ambulance? And he was like, what do you mean? I'm like, what would happen if I had to drive you home and you had 10 stitches in your head? And he's like, oh, she'd be upset and she'd probably be a little bit pissed off with me. And I said, well, Next time you look up, look out for that nail because I'll be driving you home and you're <laughs> going to be pissed off you know, and you're not going to go to work the next day. And obviously explain to him and then he was like, yeah, sweet. And he just he just kind of changed his behavior and moved away from it. But I guess um, I'm going off track a little bit. But 
things need to be relatable to people, otherwise mm-hmm. they're not going to change. They need to believe in it, feel it, care about it, love it. So, um, you know, my position is by showing the beauty and, and people get desensitized to seeing the negative side of things. Like um, people just get sick of seeing dead animals. They do. Oh, for sure. And if you haven't got to them by the first photo, then I'm surprised if you got to them by the thousandth photo. Um, to me, I feel like you really need to take these people into a realm or or make them feel present or, or tell them the negative impl- um, things that are, are involved in their life through this. Um, whereas if I just keep showing them beautiful photos of sharks and people can relate to that, they see this, the, the beauty, they start changing the way they think, they Google more education or maybe they get in contact with a scientist, that scientist then can show them someone that can take them in the water. If that all starts from one seed and blossoms into something incredible, then yeah, it's a much longer process, but it's more organic. You know, I'd rather, I mean, it's like a commodity. I'd rather be something that, you know, just gradually progresses over time than to have, I just, I just don't feel like you can change someone straight away with one photo you know hey um you know don't ever use plastic bags again here's a photo of a penguin wrapped in a plastic bag it's like yeah sweet that's a a horrible image it's 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 so sad to see but like you know I'm a whatever I'm a 40 year old male that does the shopping every night for my wife and the kids and I need plastic bags like I don't understand how I can and change my behavior and and that image is not going to change me I don't know maybe this is just my mind but I feel like it has to be more organic. It has to come from a place of love um, to connect, I think. So, um, yeah, I don't know what my my place is in conservation. In my heart is that I'm a a drastically changed person over the last four years, and I know that I'm personally doing good things with that. Um, For example, every single person that comes to Tonga on my humpback whale boat, you know, which is – close to 40 people over three months, they get given a reusable stainless steel vacuum sealed insulated bottle with a great white shark printed on it. Like it's a really cool cool product. It's a solution. So I can easily tell people, hey, don't bring any plastic bottles on the boat. Um, You know, and and people might drink four or five liters over their eight hours on the water and they bring four different plastic bottles of water on collectively that's a thousand bottles over the season that are getting poorly discarded, um, mm-hmm. burnt, thrown in a landfill, end up in the ocean. Um, but I, I gave them a solution, which is you just turn up, you get an insulated drink bottle that keeps your water cold, and then we fill your water with um, uh, rainwater that has been filtered three times. You know, so it's like it's one thing to have a problem and then to to tell people about the problem, but it's another thing to have the solution. Um, and then you. You empower people, you you give them a good quality product. Um, through that, they start taking that drink bottle with them everywhere. They realize the importance of it, and it's a tough bottle. It keeps your water cold. So why would they go back to plastic? Right, um, and, and also providing a solution that's better than the original. Exactly. I mean, to, so, to your I mean, point about the penguin, too, like something I talk to a lot of folks about is how you have to get people to care about the penguin in the first place to want to do something to help protect it. And I think exactly. by using images to get people to really fall in love with penguins and then want to learn more about them, then ultimately when 
you do kind of hit them with the the shot of the penguin with a plastic bag over its head, all of a sudden that's devastating as opposed to just being like, oh, that sucks, but I've seen a million of those. Yeah, and you know, I had some crazy comments on the the dead Mako shark, and I, I sat on that photo for, oh, I think it was close to two years before I even posted it or told anyone about it apart from the person that was there. And, um, yeah, to me, I, I've swum with Mako's, uh, absolutely amazing i've got some incredible imagery th- from them um things that i haven't printed or ever shown or i've just had some an amazing experience with riley elliott the shark scientist in new zealand and i thought it was relevant to post that and um that that i had held a dead mako before i'd ever swum with them and and that the fisherman that threw that at me he, he's not a a lesser person he's just not it hasn't come to time where he's been educated on, on the toxicity of the meat that, that he's fem- feeding his family. The the point that the shark is so important to our our marine life and and to keep that balance in the ocean. If he is a true fisherman, he cared about the 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 fish he caught, then he he would have to care about sharks. But how is he going to know this without learning it or sure. or being around that environment and him? him knowing that we're down there wanting to swim with Makos and he had caught one and thought it was funny to throw it off the boat. Um, I still don't really have a problem with him. It's more our society in general yeah. where he, why hasn't he been taught at a younger level to, to know that importance? Like if he lives in a remote fishing town and he hasn't ever been told any better, like how is he any lesser than you and I? If, if I was working in the mining industry unearthing precious minerals a few years ago and now I'm spending everything I, I have on you know traveling around the world to hang out with wild animals like you, you have to learn that through something and you have to have a a solution as to how you can change your behavior I think Sean Heinrichs and Paul Hilton are two guys that I look up to as absolute heroes because you look at certain experiences they've had like on the racing extinction documentary where they went to a local fish or a remote fishing village in Indonesia. And these guys had been fishing, I don't know, five to 10 manta rays for a, a day for hundreds of years. It was just their way of life. And they knew no better than to do that. And then China came in and kind of gave them more efficient ways to hunt them. And all of a sudden that five to 10 ended up becoming 80 to a hundred a day. But again, it was just a way of life and they understood it. And if they went in there with the documentary crew and was just like, you assholes, how the hell could you do this? You're wrong. Or even said, hey, this is why you're wrong and you really have to stop doing that. They still couldn't stop because they don't have a way to change. Like that's just the way of life. That's how they do things. And you can't expect people just to like give up their job. But what they did is they came in and they said, well, if we give you some money for research grants so that we can come in and monitor the manta rays, and if we get some ecotourism hooked on this, and then we give you more sustainable ways to fish, we can actually help you make more money. And in like two years, they changed the entire uh, course of that whole small fishing village and changed everything. Whereas just pointing the finger would have done jack shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, Sean's an incredible, incredible man, very talented and, and single-handedly done so much. Um, you know, I aspire to him, but again, that's his path and he's doing and he's found a way to navigate it in the correct way for him and he's making it really work and enjoying it and then through that he, he's he's creating incredible places um protected marine sanctuaries and things like that and that's his journey and i mean uh, 
he's had drastic things change in his life to get him to that place and I've had drastic things to get me to my place and I, I just feel like everyone needs to find their little path and sure. and, and energy and, and do it. What's uh, you know, the new yeah. project? Are you open to talking about it or is it still close to the chest? Nah, yeah, yeah, close to the chest. <laughs> but it's more more on um on you know, I guess the psychology of myself and and finding light and darkness and and um, all my series, well, I've only really got two of them out at the moment, are all connected together and they'll make more sense as the years go on. But, um, yeah, yeah, that's all I can say. <laughs> all right. Well, do you have a time frame as to when it might be coming out? Uh, I wouldn't right. have a clue. Now. That's my last <laughs> yeah. question. I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> can you talk a little bit about your last series? Was the last one incognito? Yeah, I'm still working on that. It's a work in progress. I've just added the third image to it. I mean, um, I'd love to have 10 in there and I probably have close to that now. But, um, yeah, I'm just slowly leaking it out. I want to make sure it sits all there right. And there's still a few images that I need to add to black or maybe take out of black. And um, it's something I'm working on at the moment. But, you know, at present I think I only have about 10 prints available. But I'd like to think they're somewhat original and, and kind of, um, you know, haven't really been seen like that before, I guess, and maintained a certain um, quality, I guess. So I, I don't know. Um, yeah, Can I just you talk think, a little bit about what incognito is for for those listening, and kind of what the different approach is compared to your other series of photographs. Yeah, it is it's a more very about, unique stylistic approach. Yeah, it's more more abstract for sure. It's um, using a technique which is a long exposure or slow shutter speed with natural light to focus more on um, movement, speed, direction, um, color rendition before um, individual species recognition is kind of found. So, you know, I want people to kind of look at the animal and go like, wow, I can get a sense of the direction it's moving and, and mm-hmm. how fast it's going or what it's doing, what it's trying to do. Is it trying to predate? Is it trying to get away from me? Is it just swimming? Um, and then through that also be able to tell, uh, identify the species. So at present I have three that I've printed. So one is called Abstraction, which is a green sea turtle surfacing for air. Another one is called uh, Hitchhiker, which is um, a leopard shark moving in a in a direction with a it's called hitchhiker it has a a little fish or cobia mm. or remora attached to it and then the third one is called um sovereign instinct which is a great white shark which i've just added to the series which is really different that one's um, so just trying to get really weird and a bit creative with it and to show something different and, and you know it sometimes takes a thousand photos to get one right because I'm not using any artificial lights to create that speed blur so um, I will choose my settings and then the animal decides to change its speed or behavior or direction and then straight away those settings are useless so um, it, it is technically speaking quite difficult process as well. One of the crazier things that I've learned in when I was researching for this conversation was that in all your photographs, you don't use scuba gear for the most part, right? It's all free diving. Yeah, correct. Yeah, all of is, it's all free diving. Is there or what's the um, motivation for that in, versus scuba diving? 
Um, it's just ultimate freedom underwater to me, holding your breath, um, going back to, to doing it for the reasons I want to do it for. It's just I feel like I'm really connecting with the ocean when I don't have all this cumbersome gear. It's a lot less intrusive for um, for the animal, you know, that I'm not blowing big bubbles and um, I'm not constricted to my vision instead of looking up or left to right being at depth looking for the animal instead I'm, I'm on the surface and I'm looking down I'm observing what's going on I can be patient I can really get my camera settings dialed in before making that first dive down to to get in front of the animal and it, it's a lot more organic for me um, and it's a lot harder so if I want to stand up and saying I'm offering something that not many people are offering then I want to make it sound like or make people realize that it that it is quite hard to achieve as well um, and I, I just feel like there's less limitations in freediving for me personally than there are for scuba diving. And, um, and it, it's just a more organic and quicker process, you know, jumping off a boat with pelagic animals that are fast moving compared to setting up all your scuba gear, having um, a qualified person to buddy up with and, and managing all of that time. Um, you know, I, I can dive all day on a boat when I'm free diving compared to scuba diving is a little bit different. That makes sense. So I'm going to go into, I know we're getting a little closer to time here, some more rapid fire questions. So this one may sound stupid, but something I've always wondered. When you're going to Tonga and yeah. you're getting there during kind of calving season and there's a lot of different whales there at the same time, can you hear like a symphony of whale sounds all at once, or is it something that you don't pick up on all the frequencies? Like, is um, it a- uh, you can you can hear the singers, which are the males. They'll normally be on their own at depth singing their song. And um, I mean, if you if you end up passing over one of these whales in your boat, you can feel the vibrations right through the hull of the boat, and really? you can hear it as um, not so much from the mothers and the calves. Um, but yeah, definitely from the from the males when they are singing. Not to say that the mothers and calves don't make acoustic noises. It's it's more um, more the male that you can hear there. What is your favorite animal to photograph or interact with that you would think would be somewhat unexpected compared to like the big whales and sharks? The spotted eagle ray. That's my favorite, definitely. And then I'd say probably tiger sharks and humpback whales. But, um, you know, again, I've, it's hard to pick favorites when you've been so fortunate to dive with so many different animals. Would you say there's one moment that kind of supersedes the rest underwater where you were in a situation where you're just kind of so grateful and couldn't believe that you're doing the work that you're doing? Yeah, there's probably three of them that all sit around the top and one's the the interaction with the, or the encounter with the, um, the orca in Mexico, the other ones, the tiger sharks I had in this little remote island with Riley Elliott. And then the other one is, um, the Mako sharks I had with Riley Elliott in New Zealand. So all three of them sit on the same level. <laughs> can you, can you talk about the orca one a little bit? I'm a obsessed with um, orcas. So I just love to uh, hear a little more detail. Yeah. There. Um, you know, infinite manifestation of, an encounter over, you know, conversing with the person that took me there close to a year and then um, making it happen. It was just 
absolutely amazing. We had, I think, you know, 10 orca in total, uh, two really big males, one of them just exceeding the other male in size. And it was just, you know, it went on for, I think, over two hours and I got some incredible imagery. I think I've only ever posted three photos or four photos from the encounter and I think I, I managed to capture around 1,500 photos. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And I'll, I'll probably never even, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, it's hard because you want people to see them but also they're, they're close to the heart. So, um, yeah. There's one I'm going to link in the show notes that <laughs> was the craziest one I think of all that I've seen of yours, which is you leaning over a boat and you can see your reflection in the water taking a photo of an orca that's swimming upside down. So it's literally, it looks like it's just looking at you and like staring you through the eyes. Oh, that was so wild. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard to put that into words. And, you know, um, I'd love to show all the imagery in, in a, in a um, you know, in a live show and really talk about it because then people can connect with it. You know, you can put out... 101 photos on Instagram and people just flick through and then they don't even understand how, how far you went or, you know, the, the places you put yourself to get these images, um, you know, the stress or the chaos. So yeah, I think everything has a story behind it, but that one kind of has a thousand words attached to it when you can see the reflection of myself. Um, yeah, it was, it was an amazing moment. That's a special one. Yeah. So I know we can't talk about the next series, but anything in the, like, what can people expect from the next five years? Is there any big trips coming up or certain photographs mm-hmm. or animals that you're trying to get that people can look out for? Yeah, I'm working on like a really incredible book, hopefully a bit of a masterpiece, almost like a coffee table book, I guess, but it will be one of size and have most of all my prints in it. Um, so that's something I'm probably working on for the next six months to a year to, to, publish that also I want to start my own organizational grant just touching on it quickly it's just to empower people through art and conservation I feel like um, you know I could donate money to various causes which I have done recently um, a substantial amount from the last show but um, I feel like I'd love to empower people and to start off I'd love to do that through creating a grant for you know 15 to 30 year old women um, that have a creative aspect that want to do something around conservation where we you know have applications and and potentially give them funding give them you know a computer a camera a wetsuit and then follow them for a year and see what they do with with that money and almost slingshot them into the the life I'm in now because um, you can hand out as much money as you want, but to really empower someone like that and then for them to pass that on again is important for me. That's been and, awesome. Um, yeah, and I've just had this really incredible vision lately that, you know, uh, women are, are just the empowerment and just they are the, just, I don't know, it's, it's hard to put this into words right, but I don't know, I've just been surrounded by some really intelligent, powerful women recently in LA and, and it's, it's amazing. They're just doing incredible things, and and not to say that men aren't as well, but I just feel like that, that for some reason the calling I have at the moment is to empower women more and and to give them a creative outlet. Not to say that the the um, scholarship or application wouldn't be open to to men as well, but 
yeah, it's just where I'm sitting at in my mind. So a lot of people are probably going to listen to this and make assumptions and go like, why or this or that, but it's just, it's just what I want to do. So. No, that's amazing. And I think when you look at your career path and your life path, you should be able to do whatever the hell you want to do, right? That's yeah. the, the ultimate that, goal. That, um, that, so <laughs> uh, my last question, which may be a harder one, is if you could put a billboard on the side of the highway that disseminates one message in 10 words or less, what would that be? Oh, it's so hard, but I'm, I'm more down the aspect of being true to yourself or believing in yourself or looking in the mirror and, and being confident with who you are and, and harnessing that energy and power. And, and that's the drastic change I've gone through recently has really been happy in my own body, my own mind, my own heart. And then, the artwork is just the outlet or the product from that. So, um, you know, it probably wouldn't be a billboard about sharks or whales. It'd be about you, you know, and, and that's where it comes back to this empowerment. Um, imagine giving some woman 16 years old in the middle of a country that, you know, maybe she hasn't seen the coast before. She hasn't had the funding to do her first ever art show or something like that. If you create a better person within, then you're going to create better people on the outside and, and that's the kind of thing I'm really working on at the moment is is that empowerment and confidence through um, through doing well, I guess. When people start saying, how are you doing so well? Your prints are selling for this, so you're doing a sold-out show. Um, you can give influence by just telling your story and, and making it relatable for someone else. So instead of being like, I go to the bottom of the earth to get the king penguin photo and then have the best printer and then this and that and like, almost distancing myself from the people. It's just like, no, nah, well, I listened to this or this little, this little test from the universe that I actually didn't like at the time actually uh, built me up for this and opened this door. Mm-hmm. And then just believing in all those little, you know, stories along the way, that manifestation, that inner power to get to where you are now because my story is only relevant to me. But through conversing it, um, you can find things, you know, if – if someone wants to get out of an industry and, and and create a life out of something else, then you can you can do it because I have. So why can't you? You know. Well, amen, brother. I love that, and yeah. thank you so much for taking the time. Like I said, huge fan. Excited to keep following your your story and your journey, and really look forward to seeing that grant program. That sounds amazing. And I'm going to link all the info to your social channels and website in the show notes. And to everybody listening, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time. For all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc., please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.